story is told about a rancher in Texas had a pair of boots custom made. They turned out to be too tight. The bootmaker wanted to stretch them to make them fit. But the rancher wouldn't let him. The rancher explained to the bootmaker his reason for wanting the boots to be too tight. He said, There is little in my life that is pleasurable. Every morning when I get out of bed, I have to go out and round up the cows that busted out during the night and then mend the fences they broke. Every day, all day long, I watch my ranch blow away in the dust. After supper, I watch the TV tell me about the high price of feed and the low price of beef. And all the while, my wife is nagging me to move to town. So when I get ready for bed every night, I want to look forward to the only pleasure that I've had all day long. And that's pulling off these boots that are killing my feet because they're too tight. You know, not many of us would put up with a life that is totally without any kind of pleasure. Think about the place that pleasure has in the lives of people today. There's always been and always will be some pleasure in life with stories and songs and conversations and relationships with others, friendships. But for many people today, pleasure has become the entire goal of daily life. Today, many people expect their daily work to always be pleasurable much more than our ancestors ever did. In our day and time, if it isn't fun, a lot of people don't want anything to do with it. In our modern society, we have more leisure time and more money to spend on pleasure than any other time in our history. But you know the problem for many Christians, people in the church, is that we may look in the wrong places for that pleasure. As Christians, we live in the world, so there are times that we may think like those in the world. One commentator today says this, he says, people spend trillions of dollars every year trying to make themselves happy. Whether it's with food, with various forms of entertainment, with travel, with drugs or drink, or with one of the countless other items that promise to turn your frown upside down. 
This sermon today is going to be the second in the series that I'm doing on counterfeit gods. Counterfeit gods. In the first sermon back in first Sunday of January, we said that idolatry isn't just a problem of ancient times, but it's still a problem in our time and in our lives today. And let's be clear. Idolatry is a sin that can cost us salvation in heaven, as any unrepented sin can. And you know it's a sin that's mentioned or referred to in the Bible about 1,500 times. In that introduction sermon in January, we said that anything can become an idol when it takes a place in our hearts and lives that belongs only to God. We studied and mentioned the first of the Ten Commandments where God commanded that we have no other gods before Him or more accurately, besides Him. The one true God, Jehovah God, must be our only God. I hope that every person here today and everyone watching or listening today agrees with that statement. Some of you might have missed that introduction sermon to this series on January the 2nd. We had several out for sickness at that time. And if you did miss it, I hope that you'll go back and if you can, watch it or listen to it online because it may help you to get more out of these other sermons in the series that are going to come after it. So in today's sermon, we're going to begin a study of six counterfeit gods or we could call them little g-gods that Satan uses in the battle for our hearts. We're going to study one of these in each sermon for my next, hopefully my next six sermons, starting with this one today. And I want to make something crystal clear right here. And this is something that I'll probably say often during this series. These six things on the screen that can become counterfeit gods are not sinful or evil in and of themselves. In fact, all six of these have the potential to be blessings and good gifts from God. But all six of these can be turned into counterfeit gods if we mishandle them. 
As we talked about in the introduction sermon back in January, the ancient people, like in Athens, often built temples for their little g-gods, like the Parthenon. The original Parthenon in Athens was one of them. So for this series, we're going to put these six little g-gods into three temples. We're going to put them in the temple of power, the temple of love, and the temple of pleasure. In the temple of power, we're going to study the counterfeit gods of money and success. In the temple of love, we're going to think about the God of family and the God of me. And that me is each one of us individually. And in the temple of pleasure, we're going to study the counterfeit gods of entertainment and food. So today, we're going to begin our study right here in this temple on the screen, the temple of pleasure. That we've already been talking about some today at the beginning. Now there are many, many other little G gods in the temple of pleasure, to be sure. But these are two that we could often find ourselves bowing down to. And today, in the lesson, we're going to study a little g-god that maybe some people would rather not hear a sermon about. Today we're going to study and think specifically about the little g-god of food. I started preaching on a regular basis when I was about 18 or 19 years old. I had started college at Lipscomb. And before long, I was preaching somewhere about every Sunday. For 20 years, I served as the minister of the Whitleyville congregation. And I preached for them every Lord's Day 52 Sundays a year unless I was sick or there was a meeting going on. Since I began preaching, I would estimate that I have preached well over a thousand sermons. But I can tell you today with absolute certainty without a shadow of a doubt that I have never, ever preached a sermon on this subject. Never. And you know, actually, I don't remember ever hearing an entire sermon preached on this particular subject by anyone, anywhere. Now, maybe you have, or maybe you haven't. 
And you know this may be a subject that you might think the Bible says little or nothing about. But actually it does. Actually it does address this subject in several ways and places. We're going to find out today where it does and what it says and how that applies to us. The God of food. In 2006, there was an animated movie that came out called Over the Hedge. Some of the younger or semi-younger folks here might have seen it. And that little animated comedy is a good starting point for our thoughts today on the little g-god of food. This little movie was about some animals that move from the woods to the suburbs. And the main character in the movie is R.J. the raccoon. And R.J. has discovered something important. He's discovered that human beings who live in the suburbs are bottomless pits of food. So R.J. says to the other animals, we eat to live, but humans live to eat. He tells his friends that if they just hang around the hedges, there'll always be something to eat that humans have thrown out. He wants to show the other animals what he's talking about and and so they follow him around to watch a human family. R.J. explains to them that the human mouth is called a pie hole and the people are called couch potatoes. He explains that telephones are devices that are used for summoning food. And they watch somebody in a family use the phone. And then sure enough, a pizza delivery man shows up at the house. He goes on to say that humans bring the food, take the food, ship the food, and drive the food. And he points to passing trucks with the names and pictures of food on them. seems to the animals that everything humans do involves food. He shows them what humans take when they eat too much food. And then he points to a treadmill and he says, that gets rid of the guilt so they can eat more food. Now, obviously there is some humor and exaggeration there but you know it's not that far off base think for a moment about the role that food plays in our lives today in 2019 the average American family spent $7,203 on food $7,203 
about $4,000 of that was spent on food at home, and a little over $3,000 of that was spent on food away from home, like in restaurants or fast food places. And I don't have to tell you that those numbers will be much higher for last year, 2021, because of government policies and something called inflation. In 2021, the price of food in general went up 6.8% for the 12 months ending last November. And that's the biggest 12-month increase in 39 years. So it's costing more for Americans to enjoy their favorite foods. Speaking of favorite foods, the top 10 most popular foods in America today are these, starting with number 10. We're going to work our way up to number one. Number 10 is potato chips. Potato chips. Number nine is donuts. Number eight is ice cream. Number seven is chicken tenders. Number six is soft drinks. Number five is pizza. Number four is Oreo cookies. I see heads nodding, yeah. Number three is french fries. Number two is hot dogs. And number one is hamburgers. Now I guess I've done my part to put ice cream and chicken tenders and Oreo cookies on that list. And some of you may have helped to put some of the others on that list. According to the CDC, if we can believe them, 68% of Americans today are overweight. And one-third of Americans are obese. The average American today consumes two to three pounds of sugar per week. A hundred years ago, when heart disease and cancer were not nearly as common as they are today, a hundred years ago, the average person consumed five pounds of sugar, get this, per year, per year. So we can easily see that the God of food is an important power today in our country. But you know, in all fairness, it's not just those who, who might be overweight that struggle with this counterfeit God. A person could have a, a very strong metabolism and look very fit, in great shape, and yet food could still be a little G God for them. Food can become a God if we are overly consumed with diet and exercise. A person could build their lives around 
certain health foods. And they could still be building their life around the counterfeit God, even though it might be a more healthy counterfeit God. The little g-god of food is a god that can demand a great sacrifice of time and money. And you know it's a god that can specialize in vanity and pride. Because this god can encourage us to worship our own image and to take credit for our own good health. Let me emphasize again right here the fact that food is not bad in and of itself. In the Bible, in the Bible we find that food is mostly treated as a gift, a blessing from God. God created us with physical bodies that require food for our nourishment and our survival. We can't live without the nutrients that we get from our food. You know, God could have very easily made the fueling process of the physical body to be very precise and exact. Kind of like putting gasoline in our cars. But that's not how God chose to create us and make life. Instead, God clearly wanted eating to be an enjoyable activity. You know, one of the main symptoms of the first variant, they call it, of COVID that many people had, including several of us here, one of the first symptoms was a loss of smell. Sometimes a loss or a change of taste went along with that. I talked to someone just this past week who was just getting over a case of COVID. And she talked about how how nothing still tasted right. And she just had no appetite. And it lost some weight quite a bit. And for some people, that symptom can last, it seems, a a fairly long time. God wanted eating to be enjoyable. So he created a vast spectrum of foods and different flavors. And he gave us 10,000 taste buds to give us our sense of taste. And so being able to eat is meant to be a blessing. But the problem is that every gift, every gift that God gives us can be twisted into something that can pull us away from hell. Let me say that again. Every gift that God gives us can be twisted into something that can pull us away from hell. The problem happens when we look to food to do for us what God alone can do. Instead of turning to God 
in our thoughts and our prayers. How often do we try to treat a problem or a troubled life or a troubled soul as if it were an empty stomach? People sometimes say they crave certain foods. But do we crave a right relationship with God as much as we crave certain kinds of food? Now be honest with your answer right there. One writer on this subject today said this. He said a large part of mankind's ills and the world's misery is due to the practice of trying to feed the soul with the body's food. So let's think about three ways that we surrender and give ourselves over to the little G God of food to try to bring meaning to our lives. First of all, some people may look to the God of food to give themselves a feeling of control. Giving in to the desire to overeat which all of us sometimes do, that may be a way that some people demonstrate power and control. Our lives can be complicated. And our lives are often filled with unfulfilled desires and disappointments. And we can't control always other people and make them do what we want them to do. But we may decide that we can have control, exert control over food. So we're going to show that chocolate pie who's boss. And you know, it's interesting that the opposite problem of undereating, which is called anorexia, that can have the same root desire to demonstrate power or control. The anorexic person starves himself or herself as a way of proving that they are in control. Secondly, some people may look to the God of food to give themselves an escape, a distraction from reality. You know, those pleasant eating and tasting sensations can take our minds off our troubles, right? Or they can keep us from doing uh, an unpleasant self-examination. A box of chocolates. A box of chocolates is a whole lot more pleasant than self-examination, self-improvement. Food can be a soothing escape for our pains in life and what hurts. Thirdly, some people may look to the God of food to give them insulation or protection from harm. For some people, compulsive eating can be linked to a desire to get physically larger 
because they're afraid of being thin or small. And for others, the bigger they can get, the greater the feeling of safety or having power over others. You know, sometimes people may use their physical size to try to dominate or even intimidate others. All of us need the realization that life is not out of control. And we need comfort from our pains and our sorrows. And we need a sense of protection and safety. But the question is, where do we look to meet those needs? Do we look to the little G God of food to meet those needs? Or do we look to God the Father? In John chapter 6, the Dale read from in the text, there's an account in the ministry of Jesus where we can see how the little G God of food actually became his competition. And it's an account that we're all familiar with, even the the children. It's the account of the feeding of the 5,000. That miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle besides the resurrection that's recorded in all four Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There was a huge crowd of people that day near the Sea of Galilee who had followed Jesus. And they had followed him because of all the signs and the miracles that he had done. The account in each Gospel says that there were about 5,000 men present But that number didn't include women and children who were also there. It had been a long day and they were all far from home and they needed something to eat. So let's pick up the text in John 6 where Dale stopped reading. Let's read verses 10 through 13. Here it is. Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. And so Jesus miraculously fed this huge crowd with just five barley loaves and two small fish that a young boy had and everyone ate until they were filled. And there was enough left over to fill up 12 baskets. Now Jesus later used that great miracle 
as an object lesson. He wanted the people to see the need to satisfy their souls more than their need to satisfy their bodies. He wanted to help the people learn to hunger and thirst for righteousness. He wanted them to see the truth of what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount when he said in Matthew 6.25, is not life more than food. So after everyone had eaten their fill, we read that Jesus dismissed the crowds and sent the disciples ahead of him to Capernaum on the other side of the sea. And he went up on the mountain alone to pray. You may remember that it was during the disciples' boat trip across the sea that a great storm came up that night. And Jesus walked on the water and came to them in the boat. And that was when Peter tried to walk on the water to come out and meet Jesus. And because of a lack of faith, he began to sink. And Jesus put his hand out and brought him to the boat, and the storm ceased. So when the crowds that Jesus had fed woke up the next morning, yesterday's meal was digested and and gone, so they were hungry again. So they started looking for Jesus, thinking that he would be open for breakfast, but he was nowhere to be found. When they finally found Jesus on the other side of the sea near Capernaum, here is what Jesus had to say to them. John chapter 6. Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. In other words, Jesus was saying, you've been looking for me just for the food. Not because of who I am, and the signs and the miracles that have been done to prove that. But what he said to them, as we would say, went over their heads. And the people didn't get his point. And so they wanted Jesus to to give them a sign to make them believe in him. Like they hadn't already seen enough So they said to him in verse 30 in the chapter, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? And just in case Jesus couldn't think of a good sign, they suggested one. There in verse 31 on the screen. They dropped Jesus a hint. 
They said that he could give them some nice, fresh bread from heaven, like the man of the Israelites were fed with in the desert. And they even quoted Old Testament scripture to Jesus, which is almost laughable. You see, that crowd had nothing but food on the brain. In John 6, verse 35, Jesus said to the crowd, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. In those words, Jesus was saying to the crowd that even though they didn't see it and didn't realize it, he was the real bread they needed. You know, that boat trip that the disciples took across the northern part of the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, that trip was several miles long. And it would take probably a couple of hours to get there. Those people had made that two-hour trip looking for some bread for their stomachs. But Jesus himself was the bread they needed for their souls. So the questions that each one of us need to think about and answer today are these. Do I really believe that Jesus is the bread of life and that my real hunger and thirst can only be satisfied by him? Have we learned and experienced the promise of Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 6, where he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Have we taken the psalmist up on his challenge in Psalms 34, verse 8? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Have we really understood what Jesus meant when Satan tried to tempt him in the wilderness with food and he said in Matthew 4, verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Have we come to have the mindset that Jesus had when he said in John chapter 4, I have food to eat of which you do not know. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Does the little G God of food ever take our attention away from our real God who is the bread of life? So let's wind up this sermon today with a little self-examination. Let's ask ourselves three questions to help us see if our relationship with food 
is in line with a right relationship with God? Question number one. Do we eat more for pleasure or for nourishment? There's a little movie said that we mentioned. Do we eat to live or live to eat? Why do we eat what we eat? Is it mostly because of pleasure or is it nourishment? And again, there is absolutely nothing wrong with finding pleasure from a gift that God has given us. But if we pursue pleasure for its own sake, you know, it has a way of expanding and growing beyond its borders and taking over. Question number two. When and why do we overindulge? Does the term comfort food really describe our reason for eating? Do we ever use food as a comfort for our hurts and our problems in life? When things in life are going wrong and some problem comes along, is our first impulse to go for the food. And again, be honest with your answer right there. Question number three. Are we able to exercise God-given self-control? Can we enjoy a slice of pizza or do we have to eat the whole thing? Can we enjoy one or two cookies or does it have to be the whole box or bag? You know, in the Bible, people sometimes practice self-control by fasting. Brother Matthew preached a sermon on fasting some time ago. The Bible mentions the practice of fasting more than 70 times. And some of the most familiar passages on that come from Jesus. The purpose of fasting in the Bible was to make people more focused and more aware of their need for God. But there were those in Jesus' time, like the Pharisees, who were making a a public show out of their fasting to show others how righteous they were. So in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, Jesus gave some guidelines for those who chose to fast. He told in that passage there on the screen that if it was to be done, if fasting was to be done, it should be an act of private devotion and not a public show. Now there is certainly nothing wrong with the practice of fasting today. When it's done for the right reasons, and in the right way. And there can be spiritual benefits to it. But it's not a command, it's not a requirement for us today 
And there are no penalties mentioned anywhere in the New Testament for those who don't practice it. And you know there are people with certain medical conditions that should not be fasting. Jesus alone is the one true feast. He fills our every need. In Psalm 16, verse 5, David wrote, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. Jesus frees us from a wrong relationship with food because he is our portion. And in him we can find what we truly need. If we seek our joy and our meaning in life, in our food, then the source of our joy always disappears and has to be found again over and over and over every day. But it's different with Jesus. Nothing tastes better than the joy and the satisfaction of knowing Christ and living for Him and being a part of His church. Nothing tastes better. Nothing nourishes the soul like He does. Nothing feeds and strengthens and renews us like the time we ought to spend with him each day. As he did with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, Jesus invites us to come to the well. Come to the well where he offers us living water so that we never thirst again. In that account in John 4, 14, He said, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Think about a time in the hot summertime when you come in from the hot sun and you're wet with sweat and your mouth and your throat is parched and dry. And then you drink a nice cool glass of pure water. Does anything ever taste any better? That's a taste of what it feels like to be spiritually starving and to be given the bread of life. To have a thirsty soul and to drink from his living water. As we're going to sing about today in the invitation song that I asked Jamie to lead. It's an old song that we sing here fairly often. But I want you to think about the words as we sing it. In the light of what we've talked about here today. Jesus 
is the bread of life. And our real hunger and thirst can be satisfied only by Him and by obedience to Him. So today, if you're not a Christian, Jesus invites you today to accept His invitation and come to Him in faith. Come to Him in repentance of your sins. Come to Him in confession of His name. And then in the act of baptism, immersion in water for the remission of sins. And then, if you and I live faithfully, we can have that fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. If you've once been a Christian but you've fallen away from Christ and and the church through sin in your life, then he invites you to come today in confession, in repentance of those sins, and be restored to a right relationship with God. If you're subject today to the invitation in any way, we invite you to come. As together we stand and sing.